0: We are currently studying through the Gospel of John, and our, our exposition of the Gospel brings us to verse 12 of John chapter 18. So if you would, please open your Bibles to John 18, Is we will look together this morning at verses 12 to 27. It's a lot of ground to cover. We finished last service. I anticipate that we shall finish this service as well. John 18, beginning in verse 12. The word of God reads, So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong." but if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Father, we ask now, again, that you would grant us fresh insight to this glorious truth. And I ask that you would enable me to clearly communicate this most glorious truth, not in my own might nor strength, but Again, in the power of your spirit. And that your people will be built up in the truth this morning. And anyone here not yet born again of the spirit, that today would be the day of their spiritual birth by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have two trials before us this morning. The trials of incarnate deity and finite humanity. Two trials with two results. The incarnate Son of God and the Lord's lead apostle, Peter. Two simultaneous events woven together in one historical narrative. But before we begin to look into the details of the account, it's imperative that we remember the purpose of John's gospel. And that is to declare the glory of the incarnate Son of God. John's focus is to magnify the divinity of Jesus rather than his humanity. That's his focus. And we've witnessed this repeatedly over the past two years in our studies of this very gospel. From the sublime declaration of John chapter 1 verse 1, which reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To the glorious confession of Thomas in chapter 20 verse 28, where Thomas answered and said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Which is followed up with John's purpose statement for writing the gospel. John 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. Now, throughout his ministry the God-man was in absolute control of every situation and episode that faced him. He was never tricked, he was never trapped or shocked, he was in no way a victim of circumstance, nor was he by any means ever, ever taken by surprise. As we entered into the arrest of the Lord last time, we looked at verses 1-1 through 11, you know that the truth remains the same. Jesus is no casualty. He's nobody's victim. But he is the one who set the details of his arrest into order. The irony here is that the judge of all humanity stands willingly before corrupt human judges. Not because he's fallen into their trap, but rather he's predetermined that he would submit himself as the lamb who would be slain for the sins of who? Many. Many. Jesus came to this very specific hour. In all things, we're going according to his preordained plan. Now, if you recall, John chapter 17 is one prayer. It's Jesus, the sovereign Son of God, praying to the sovereign Father. And in John chapter 17, verse 1, he begins the prayer and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. having concluded his time of prayer for those given to him by the Father. And you'll remember in John 17, verse 9, he says, I do not pray for the world. He's praying for a specific group of people. He concludes the prayer. And then Jesus confronts Judas in the garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't Judas that confronted Jesus, Jesus confronted Judas along with the mixed multitude of both Jew and Gentile unbelievers who came to capture Jesus, including Pharisees, the temple guard of the chief priests, along with a Roman cohort, and as you recall, a cohort is is um, one-tenth of a legion, and a legion being 6,000 means that there were 600 Roman soldiers with the priests, with the Pharisees, with lanterns, torches, and weapons all to capture Jesus. For months, they've been plotting how to get rid of him, but they couldn't do it openly because he was too much of a public figure. Many people esteemed Jesus much too highly, so they waited to take him in secret. Matthew's account, chapter 26, verse 3, it reads that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. It's Passover. They were not going to take him during Passover but they weren't in control. They wanted Jesus dead for quite some time now, but they had a couple problems. Number one, they couldn't have crucified him, for that was strictly a Roman method of execution. And secondly, they would have had had to kill him in secret because Rome had taken away, away their right of capital punishment, which would have been stoning. They would have had to do it in secret. But regardless of their timetable, regardless of their inabilities, the preordained program of God was underway. It would not be upset, but it would be carried out as prophesied according to the scriptures. Therefore, Jesus, earlier this night, during the Passover supper, Satan, having entered Judas, in John 13, verse 27, that which commenced this very night that we look at now, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Jesus pushed Judas into the timetable that is at hand. So Jesus orders this Satan indwelt lover of money to commence his betrayal. He would have to obey and Satan within him had to obey. There's no choice here. This is the command of the authoritative logos, the Word of God, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The moment has arrived, and Jesus, to make it easy for them, moves to a place outside of the city where they'll have no trouble taking him. So Jesus, in all actuality, simplifies Judas' job for him. Because Judas knew all too well that Jesus retired nightly to the Garden of Gethsemane during feast week. And all of this, my friends, is to simply remind us that Jesus is in no less control here during his arrest and trial, which will lead to his crucifixion, than he was when he spoke the universe into existence. He was in control then, before time. He's in control here in the garden and he is in absolute sovereign control this very moment. Can I get an amen? Amen. So there's two trials before us this morning. Two dramatic events that occur simultaneously. The trial of the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ, set against the backdrop of denial from his most prominent disciple, otherwise known as... Simon, Peter. Trial number one is the trial of incarnate deity, the unwarranted trial of the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, set against the trial of finite humanity, the very necessary trial of the ever self-confident one, Peter. And both dramas teach us two basic truths to all of Christianity. And that is the glory of Jesus Christ in contrast to sinful men. The humility of Jesus, we will see, is opposed to the self-reliant pride of Peter. The faithful obedience of Jesus compared to the faithlessness of Peter. We will see Jesus who boldly denies nothing and Peter who denies nothing. Everything. In both trials are brought together by way of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle John right here in verses 12 to 27. Now, last time we left off with Jesus telling Peter to put his sword back into his sheath. Jesus had once again spared Peter his very life, by replacing the ear of the high priest-servant Malchus. He pulls out his sword. He's attempting to take the head of this young man off, no doubt. Probably bounces off the helmet. He hacks off the guy's ear. Jesus resurrects the ear. Puts it back on his head. So don't forget that this entire group, this mob, witnessed two miracles that totally defy the laws of nature. Number one, Jesus approaches them at the gate of the garden and he said, who, He inquires, who is it that you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus replies, I am. What happens? They all fall down backwards by the authority of his name. And that's where enemies of Christ go. They fall backwards. Worshippers of the Lord Jesus Christ fall forward in humble submitted obedience. Remember that next time you see someone slain in the spirit who fall backwards. (laughs) Miracle number one. Followed by miracle number two, the resurrected ear, placed back on the head of Malchus by Jesus. Now, the, the troops there, the Roman cohort, certainly would have been standing in ranks. There's 600 of them. Word would have gotten back real quick. So they hear this? What's the response of all this? What's the response to these two glorious miracles, this supernatural power? How do they respond? They throw down their weapons and they bow down and say, God Almighty. Yeah? Not hardly. Verse 12, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. That's how they respond. So here we enter in now to Jesus' trial, part one. Jesus now faces a religious trial, a ridiculous religious trial, And uh, later on in the morning hours, he will face a civil trial before Pilate, which we will not cover today. We'll look at the religious trial today, and here we see part one. Now, no sooner does this mob dust themselves off from getting, getting up from the ground, and what is it? It's business as usual. Now remember, within this multitude, you have Gentiles, you have Jews, heathen, religious, soldiers, servants, priests, and Pharisees. And as different as they all are, they all have one thing in common, and that's this. They totally, completely, each one of them, are stone blind to the unparalleled qualities of the Son of God. They are spiritually dead, my friends. They're totally untouched by the incredible display of the power of Jesus Christ that they've all just witnessed. What does this tell us? Something very important. It's this, friends. Miracles by themselves as witnessed by people never ever create saving faith. Period. God's providence is made evident to all kinds of people every day. Many unbelievers respond, wow, that was without doubt divine intervention right there, no doubt about it. Others, oh God, please get me out of this jam. And God at His providential grace, even for the unbelieving, does so for His purposes. How do they respond? Business as usual. You see, friends, there's only one miracle One that will bring any and every lost sinner to faith every single time. 100% effective, 100% of the time, one miracle, and that is it. And that, my friends, is the miracle of regeneration. God's miraculous act of causing a sinner to be born again. Jesus made it very clear to a religious priest, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, verse 3, and it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot perceive the things of God. It's impossible. What role does man play in being born again? Nothing. He responds to be obedient, having been born again. As the wind blows to and fro, you do not know where it comes from, nor where it goes, so is everyone, Jesus said, who's born of the Spirit. Unless God miraculously intervenes to transform the hardened, compromised, lethargic hearts of men, they'll remain blind. And they will attempt to bind Jesus, keeping him away, and keeping him shut up from their seared consciences. Jesus is bound, but he's not bound by man here. Jesus is bound by the love he has for those he came to die for. That's what he is bound by this night. All those given to him by the Father in eternity past, for whom he prayed in John 17, he's bound by love. Next, verse 13. They bound him, and they led him to Annas first. For he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, if you've read over this, it it may seem confusing that both Annas and Caiaphas are referred to as high priest. If you look at verse 13, they led him away first to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest. When you get to verse 19, Annas is the one interrogating Jesus, and it says the high priest then questioned Jesus, referring to Annas. You get down to verse 24, so Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So why the apparent confusion? Annas was high priest from the year 6 to 15 AD, during the childhood years of Jesus. But around the year 15, he'd been pressured by the Romans to bail out from being high priest. Remember? The Jews were under the bondage of Rome. They wanted that office to become a puppet office. But Annas was very rich and he was very powerful. They wanted a pawn in there. So it's very likely that Annas had the legitimate right to be high priest, and he certainly could have come from the line of Aaron. That was the qualification of God to be high priest, only from the Aaronic line. And in the Old Testament, a man, when he was given the position of high priest, he held that position for life. So technically, Annas was still high priest in the eyes of many people and therefore could be legitimately referred to as high priest. But Rome, as I said, had felt they needed to put a pawn in position as high priest, so they would kind of co-appoint, along with the Jews, someone to hold that position. But in reality, technically, they weren't legitimate. It's very interesting that four of Annas' sons held the position of high priest. And here, who do we see in this position? His son-in-law, Caiaphas. And he held the office from 18 to 36 AD during the lively ministry, the active ministry of Jesus. But by this time in Jewish history, in order to be high priest, they would simply bow down and kiss the feet of the Roman authorities while handing over a lot of money, you see. Get in the picture? So they would basically buy the office to where they became this corrupt religious system of bribery. And Annas was so wealthy that he just kept buying the office of high priest and though they wouldn't allow him in there, he would just place one of his sons or relatives into the position. But he was therefore always what? Behind the scenes? Always in control. Always in control. So although Caiaphas was the official high priest, Annas was the power broker behind it all. Annas hated Jesus. Annas had been highly, openly exposed by Jesus. Annas was the main operator of this apostate religious machine, and he ran the show. When Annas was removed from the position of high priest in 15 AD, he took over running the temple concessions. What were these temple concessions, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you this. It wasn't setting up the coffee and the donuts and the bagels and the juice. Putting little bottles of water out there for small donation. You see, for God's people to come and worship, as God has prescribed in the Old Testament, the people would have to bring a spotless lamb, spotless animal to sacrifice before holy God. Jewish pilgrims would come in from throughout the land. They'd bring this lamb to be sacrificed, or perhaps they bring a couple doves if they were poor. And then when they entered the temple grounds, the temple courts, strategically placed within the temple grounds, there were the blemish inspectors, these religious priests. So if an animal was brought from home, which most of them would do, bring this little lamb up, and you know, it couldn't have like, you couldn't be missing a leg or have a blind eye or a spot, these priests would inspect them. And you could be certain that some kind of flaw would be found on the majority. And at this point, the worshiper would be conveniently led to a nearby concession booth, where he could purchase an animal already approved for sacrifice. How convenient. But it had been incredibly marked up in price, you see. In addition to that, the money used to purchase these unblemished animals had to be Jewish and Roman. Jewish currency rather than Roman. So most of them had in their pockets Roman currency, So again, conveniently located just across the way was another concession table of the money changers. You would take your Roman currency and exchange it for Jewish currency and they would up the rate. So needless to say, Annas was extremely wealthy. It was Annas who ran the entire operation. The head honcho. And guess who turned the entire operation upside down? Jesus the Nazarene, that's who. In the beginning of his ministry, in the beginning of his public ministry, back in John chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus enters in at Passover into the temple grounds. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at the tables. And he, gentle Jesus, made a scourge of cords. Whip. And he drove them out of the temple. Them who? Those selling oxen, sheep and doves along with the money changers. He chased them out along with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and he turned the tables upside down. Gentle Jesus. And then at the end of his ministry, just one one week prior to the very night that we're looking at right now, Matthew 21, verse 12, Jesus does it again. And he refers to it as a den of robbers. Jesus offended Annas. Jesus exposed his money-making schemes. Jesus had offended this man's pride and he exposed his covetous heart along with the hypocrisy of his high priestly role. That's Annas. His son-in-law was Caiaphas, verse 14. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Now, Caiaphas himself had been plotting Jesus' death for quite some time now. He was your typical purchased politician. He was always paranoid and running scared, and that's what purchased people do. Having never earned the position by ability, they continually live in doubt and in prideful fear but he loves the prestige of the office. And he'd become more than familiar with Jesus at this point. Jesus was popular. Jesus moved the people. Jesus taught like no other. He taught with authority, unlike the scribes. He performed miracles, and he confronted the corrupt system of Judaism. And then, less than a week ago from this very night, if you remember, the streets were filled with people crying out, what? Hosanna! Hosanna. And just prior to those people crying out, Hosanna, Jesus called a dead man out of the grave. Four days dead, Lazarus. Back in John 11, having heard of Jesus raising Lazarus, some of Caiaphas' associates said this, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Ha huh. And then one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. And not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Interesting. In his mind, killing Jesus was the lesser of two evils here, supposing that Jesus will start some kind of revolution. He feared Rome would step in, revoke his priestly role and their influence over the people. They in turn would lose control. So what? Let's get rid of him. Kill him. Caiaphas spoke truth here that he did not understand. Who's in control, beloved? God. Who's sovereign, man or God? God. God can speak through a corrupt high priest just as easily as he can speak through Balaam's donkey. And he did. Plans to kill Jesus took root back in John chapter 5. Those plans were sanctioned here in chapter 11. And then here in John 18, John is simply reminding us of those actions are beginning to take place. This, my friends, begins the unlawful trial of Jesus. So now, picture this. Here's the camera on Jesus before Annas. Camera pulls back and it sweeps over to the outside courtyard of Annas. And that's where we pick it up. Verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Now remember, Jesus predicted earlier this night that at his arrest, all of his disciples would be scattered. They would flee. John 16, 32, indeed the hour is coming, he says to his 11, yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. That's the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, from which Aaron read this morning. Old Testament prophecy that had to be fulfilled. Now, is Jesus, earlier this night, was arrested, he made a way of escape for his disciples. And somewhere along the way, Peter, as he's fleeing, turns around and he heads back towards those that are leading Jesus away. This is typical of Peter. This is very Peter-esque. Because Peter cannot seem to stand where the Lord provides shelter. Protection. From what? Temptation. In the garden, the Lord built this little protective shelter behind him for the eleven. Peter didn't accept that, so he pulls out his sword and he begins to fight the Romans and he whacks a guy's ear off. And no sooner does Jesus deliver him from that grand mistake, Matthew tells us that the disciples, they did forsake him, they fled, and they went away. But Peter didn't run that far. He should have ran. It was his way of escape, but he stopped. You see, he doesn't have the sense at this point to know what he cannot handle. You see that? He doesn't have the sense, he doesn't have the maturity to understand what he cannot handle. You see, down in his heart, he remembered what he promised Jesus earlier this night. He said to Jesus, I will lay down my life for your sake. Same night, upper room, John chapter 14, verse 37. He loves Jesus, no doubt about it. He can't stand the thought of being without Jesus, so he turns back. He follows the mob at a distance. Now, this companion of his that enabled him access into the courtyard, this companion, another disciple of Christ, was known by the high priest We don't know who it is. Some have thought it to be John the Apostle himself. And the reason is this. You know that John and James were brothers. They were the sons of Zebedee, and they had a fishing business up in Galilee. Now, tradition tells the story that within this fishing business, they used to pack this fish in salt, and that's the way you would preserve it in that day, and they would head up to Jerusalem. And they had this special fish, which was a delicacy of the day, and... John was the little delivery boy into the house of the high priest. So some think that it was him. And they even have in the traditional site there, if you go to Israel, um, Zebedee's fish stand, I think it is. Something like that. I think personally it's a fishy story. But it could have been John, don't know. But it also could have been Nicodemus and or Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, both part of the Sanhedrin. I think it's more likely, but whoever it was, he was able to walk in the high priest's courtyard without being questioned, you see? He wasn't questioned. He had access. So this man, whoever it is, he goes and speaks to the servant girl who who functioned as the porter of the gate to allow Peter access into this courtyard now. So here's Peter inside the gate. of Annas the high priest. Now, as I said, there's no question that he loved Jesus with all his heart, but Peter had a problem, and it was his own self-confidence. That was his problem. That was his weakness. You see, Peter thought himself strong enough to handle any temptation, and that, my friends, is a great mistake for you and for me as well. Jesus told Peter earlier in Luke 22:31, "Simon, Simon, indeed, same night, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, meaning it will not fail ultimately, and when you have returned to me, that's the guarantee, you will return, strengthen your brethren." strengthen your brothers. You see, temptation, my friends, never comes wrapped in the approach that we configure in our own minds. You know how we configure, well, if I do this, the temptation will come this way. Guess what? It doesn't happen that way. Satan is much too crafty. Verse 17. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said... I am not. Now, Peter had to have known in his mind that he would face some kind of opposition once he realized, I'm going back. He knew he would face something, but I'll tell you one thing, he certainly wasn't thinking that his integrity would be challenged by the innocent question of a little girl this big burly fisherman. I'm sure he thought at this moment, why did I say that? But before we get too frustrated with Peter, look at your own life. You know, the Lord promised us, those that are his, those that are in Christ, I will give you a secure place. Do not go out into and become part of the world system. Don't. Don't buy their philosophy. Don't amuse yourself with their entertainment. Don't get wrapped up in their nonsense. Don't partake of their worldly customs. Don't become part of the scene, man, to be cool. And don't, by the way, stand behind my pulpit, says the Lord, and try to be cool like the world. You stand out from the world. I've provided you a place, Jesus says, where you can grow, where you can become strong in my grace, not in your own strength, my protection. And when you're strong enough by my grace, equipped for the work of the ministry, then you can go out there and meet the world and be victorious. That's what Peter would do. He wasn't ready yet. That was his future. But until that time, until you're strong, remain within my protection. Remain around those who belong to me. That's what the church is for. The church is for believers. Did you know that? It's not for unbelievers. We hope believers will come in and hear the gospel and repent and become part of the church. This is the body of Jesus Christ. The Bible is for believers, it's not for unbelievers. We preach the gospel to all, but only he can change them. And when he changes them, he enfolds them into his flock, the church. We don't go accommodate the world and try to entertain them, nor do we become like them. But, Many Christians say, not me. You don't have to worry about me there, big brother. I can handle it. I've got it covered. I will never fall into those old traps of sin. I will never become like the world. I'll never be like the swine that goes back to the, 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 the mire that's been washed. I'll never be the dog that returns to its vomit that the Proverbs talks about and that Peter talks about later on in his epistle. But before you know it, There they are because they go in their own strength and they they will find themselves comforting themselves right alongside the world. You follow Jesus at a distance as Peter did and you too will find yourself looking as though you're not one of his. And then when they ask, you're not one of his disciples, are you? Just like he said, I'm not. Or perhaps you'll say, I would never say that. As a matter of fact, I s- I'll say I'm a Christian. Well, then they'll laugh at you and go, <laughs> No, you're not. You're just like me, man. You're just like me. Verse 18. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming Himself. Jerusalem is 2,600 feet above sea level and on an early spring night, this is early in the spring, it'd be very chilly. So there he is. They have a charcoal fire going. And a charcoal fire uh, is not some big inferno, so it burns low and it doesn't emit a lot of light. And if you want to receive some of its heat, you've got to skirt yourself up and get close to it. So here's Peter, he edges himself up now, not wanting to be recognized in order to warm himself. He warms himself by the fires of unbelievers. You dabble around there too long, friends, you will get burned. You will get burned. You know, you got Joe Christian who flippantly says, no sweat, man. You know, my business trip to Vegas, done it a hundred times. I'm not going to fall prey. You won't find me at a strip joint. You won't find me going to one of these brothels. No way. But you see, it's not the big confrontations. It's not the big open temptations that hit you in the face. It's the small, subtle ones along the way. They'll hook you. I'm sure Peter was figuring on a meeting up with some Roman, Roman soldiers counting the cost to go back and follow Jesus, but he was not counting on a little girl at the gate. A little girl. Servant girl. He denies knowing Jesus and then he comforts himself around the fires of unbelief. Let me ask you a question. When you're feeling down, I'm talking to Christians. When you're feeling down, where do you go to find comfort? Don't answer, just think about it. When you're feeling lonely, discouraged, when you're feeling insignificant, where do you go to find comfort? Where do you go to find comfort when temptation comes knocking? The pill bottle you have stashed away? Habitual drinking of alcohol? Pornography? The counsel of unbelieving friends? You see, again, Satan is far too subtle to be able to stand against him in your own strength. He'll sift you as wheat. Complacency. Christians are tempted. They'll be tempted right into complacency. Sometimes that's where they find their comfort. They'll lay around all day on their couch. They'll do nothing. They disengage. Temptation of laziness. Camera pulls off of Peter. Back to Jesus. Part 2, verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? I'm sure he had his teeth gritted. Jesus answered him, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Notice Jesus does not answer regarding his disciples. They question Jesus about his disciples. I mean, he takes all of the attention off of them once again, and he affixes it upon himself. This is another illustration of what we witnessed back in verse 8. At the arrest, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. The Lord's protection. Jesus is in absolute control. Now, at first glance, Jesus' response here seems to be a bit terse or gruff, short, sarcastic. If you've ever read it like that, that's not the way to interpret it. That's not the case. Jesus is actually here confronting Annas on his illegal court proceedings. That's what he's doing. Jesus here is challenging Annas to try this case in keeping with first century law. It was illegal to question the defendant. Therefore, Annas is hes out of order. Jesus therefore said, Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. So he's simply here exposing the misconduct that was being perpetrated by the high priest. The entire case was to be built on the testimony of gathered witnesses. And you would first allow those in favor of the defendant or in support of the defendant to give testimony first and then you would proceed to question the opposing witnesses. Also, in Jewish law, the high priest was never allowed to speak in a court case because his influence was so powerful. And because of that, he could easily sway the other priests. So he was not even to speak. So, Jesus is saying here, present your case along with the evidence in a proper, lawful way. That's what he's saying. It's illegal for you to question me. It's illegal for me to speak in my own defense. So, don't question me. Question those who heard me, the witnesses. They'll tell you what I said, they'll tell you what I taught. So, Jesus stops him dead in his tracks. Annas knew it, he was humiliated and he was so humiliated that one of his little assistants strike jesus in the slap here that's another violation of jewish law which states that a person could not be struck until guilt was established then you deal out the punishment. So once again, Jesus answered, if I've spoken wrongly, then testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? In other words, if my response to the high priest was illegal, then lodge a formal complaint of contempt of court. That's what you do. But if I've spoken the truth, especially with regard to this illegal interrogation, why on earth do you slap me? Because they're guilty. And they know it. See, it's not Jesus who's on trial here. Annas is being tried and he's found guilty by the Lord of glory. And by the way, just in case you're wondering well, shouldn't Jesus just turn the other cheek? I'll tell you something. People raise that question. Let me tell you something. Jesus is already turning the other cheek on his path to Calvary. As he would lay down his life and bear blows from sinful men like Annas and ultimately bear the blow of the Father's wrath. It's already turned. That's where he's headed. But once again, there's nothing Annas could say. There's nothing he could answer the Lord with. So they send him off. Verse 24. So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, once he gets to Caiaphas, the synoptic gospels tell us that they couldn't find any evidence against him there either. Finally, two did agree that he's the one who said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise up a new one we learn that as he stood before Caiaphas, they asked him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, it is as you say. The high priest at that point tears his clothes and he cries blasphemy. The people at that point begin to spit on Jesus. They push him around. They shove him. They put a blindfold on him and they punch him in the face and they mock him saying, tell us now prophet. Who struck you? Blindfolded and punched. You know, the human body is made in a very interesting way, in that if someone curls up their fist against you and begins to strike a blow, or if an object is flinging towards your face, your body and your eye together work to cause you to back up a bit, to bob. To weave. But, if you're blindfolded, you have no idea that the punch is coming. The pain is going to be that much more great. The damage will be that much more severe. And Isaiah 52, therefore, says of the coming suffering servant, Jesus Christ, that his appearance was marred more than any man. Beaten beyond recognition. camera comes off of Jesus. Back to Peter, verse 25. Peter's trial, part two, scene two, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Notice now, it's those that are around the fire that inquire of Peter. Are you not also one of his? The people he's warming himself with. See, one lie leads to another. That's what liars are like, man. Try to follow a liar around once. He can't keep up with himself. He can't remember who he tells what. Peter's in over his head at this point. He's falling fast. He's falling hard. And somewhere in the distance, a rooster is sticking out his breast and ruffling his feathers. And then in verse 26, one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Do you see the contrast here, beloved? Two trials set against the failure and the faithlessness of Peter is the overwhelming faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, the suffering servant. But what does Peter hear at this point with his ear? What does he hear in the cock's crow? You know what he hears? Guilty. Coward. Failure. Failure. And who among us cannot identify with Peter? Who hasn't had a rooster crow at their failures as a true believer? And that's who I'm talking to here. True believers. The rooster's not wrong. Peter can't blame the cock's crow. We can't blame the crowing of the conscience. Nevertheless, the rooster's crow is not only a rightful call of condemnation here, but it's also a call for Peter to this, friends, repentance. Repentance. When Peter heard it, he remembered. Luke informs us in his account that the two scenes here, Jesus on trial, Peter in the courtyard, come together. Listen to this. In Luke chapter 22 verse 61 is Jesus was being transferred to Caiaphas through that courtyard when the rooster crowed, the scripture reads, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he had told him, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Judas was sorrowful that he betrayed innocent blood. He went out, sorrowful, hanged himself. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Sorrow that is sorry because of the consequence of my sin leads to death. Godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7, leads to repentance. Repentance. Produces repentance, rather. Leading to salvation. You see, this is why the story's here. This is why the story's woven together. Jesus, he's tried and he's victorious. Peter is tried and defeated. Many things we can learn from this, beloved. First of all, what do we learn? The believer in his own strength... He's helpless. You are weak. And you're looking at a weak man in his own strength. Weak. Utterly helpless. We see the danger of self-confidence. We learn the consequence, friends, of prayerlessness for the believer. Jesus told Peter earlier this night, Why do you sleep? Pray lest you fall into temptation. We see the danger of evil company. Believers. Evil company corrupts good habits. Who are your friends? Do you hang out with more believers or more unbelievers? And we also see here the power of fear. But perfect love casts out what? All fear. It's a good thing that Peter's story doesn't end here, beloved. Beloved. Because we will see that Jesus fully recovers Peter when we get to chapter 21. Set against the backdrop of our failings is the glorified brilliance of Christ's faithfulness. That's what you want to walk away from this building with this morning. The glorious faithfulness of Jesus Christ bearing that shame. You see, as we grow to understand our weaknesses, friends, and the utter helplessness of our utter helplessness apart from him, that there's nothing we can do to stand, you will be enabled to see with much more clarity his magnificent strength and provision for you. It's amazing. It's amazing. So the strength that led Jesus to the cross for our wretched sin and miserable failures is what's before you this morning. That's what you should see. His strength. So here now, friends, as we come to the Lord's table together, we come by grace. We become because of grace. Only for believers do we come can you come to the Lord's table. Fully dependent to allow him to silence the crow of the rooster. which is possible only because of Jesus' faithful path to the cross, which began right here this night at his arrest. Now, again, I speak to believers. Perhaps you find yourself lately warming yourself around the fire of unbelievers. Your life consists of standing around with unbelievers most of the time, and it's not for the sake of of proclaiming the gospel. You're messing around in the world, you know you're messing around in the world, and your conscience up to this point has been silenced. But perhaps today by his grace and his sovereign providential control over your life, he has you here to hear, to awaken you, because you're his. You must wake up. You must repent of that so that you can with a clear conscience come to the Lord's table in remembrance of what he's provided for you. And if that's you, this message this morning is the look of Jesus Christ into your eyes so that you go out and you will weep bitterly in order to make it right like Peter did. That's a sorrowful heart. That's a repentant heart. He was the Lord's. So there's only one way out. And that is to really look into the face of Jesus Christ, just like Peter, and remember what it used to be like. And friends, you must return to your first love. You must return to your first love, if that's you as a believer this morning. For the rest of you, those in Christ, I recommend that you come to the table with utter humility and thanks for what he's provided for me and for you. We are not not beyond falling like Peter. We're not beyond falling into the most gross sin that your mind can comprehend. From me to all of you, any one of us, can fall to the slightest temptation but by his grace. There what? There I go. There go I. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, and the Lord again by his providential grace has brought you here, perhaps this is where he changes your life forever. If you're not a true born again believer, and if you're not born again, you're not a true believer, I pray that today's the day that he causes you to be born again. And if he's working in your life now to transform your heart, you must, by the authority of the Word of God, repent. Which means this change your mind. This is you. You're going after the world. You serve yourself. You worship yourself. You must turn and forsake yourself and forsake this world and repent and turn to Jesus Christ and believe not about him, but into him. You embrace him. You repent and you believe. And you follow because of grace. And the hope is that he's here to open your eyes, to give you spiritual sight, to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh in order that you will be enabled to follow him. The Bible says you too shall be saved. Then you can come to the table by grace. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the reminder once again that we have absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. We have absolutely nothing to do with earning any part of our future inheritance. We thank you for the grace provided for us to save us. Thank you for the beauty of your church. Thank you for your glorious bride made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can be confident that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, though our sins are deserving of everlasting condemnation. But our trust and our faith is in you, the one who bore the shame, the one who bore the wrath, taking our sin upon yourself and handing to us, placing on our account your righteousness. Thank you for the grace Thank you for Peter, your disciple, Lord, who you made an incredible man of God. And thank you for revealing the mistakes that they made so that we have hope in knowing how to pull ourselves up by grace and follow because of that grace. Bless your people this morning. Prepare our hearts now to partake of the juice, the bread, which represents your crushed, broken body and your shed blood for your people, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.